0: Hello there. So, you're about to listen to a recorded version of a lecture that I delivered at the University of Tilburg in the Netherlands on the 24th of September 2019. The lecture was entitled Welcoming Robots into the Moral Circle and was a riff off a paper I wrote with the same title but with the subtitle A Defense of Ethical Behaviorism. Now, the lecture is effectively a more abbreviated and punchier summary of the arguments in that paper. So if you want the elaborated academic detail, I recommend reading the paper. But if you want to get the basic gist of what I have to say on this topic, this lecture should give you everything that you need. As always, and if you like this podcast and you want to support it in some way, I would appreciate it if you could share it with other people on social media and so forth. And also, crucially, if you could maybe review it on iTunes or Stitcher or one of those other podcasting services. I guess actually iTunes is now defunct, so it's Apple Podcasts. All right, so without further ado, let me just get into the lecture itself. So my lecture this evening will be about the conditions under which we should welcome robots into our moral communities. Whenever I talk about this topic, I am struck by how much my academic career has come to depend upon my idle childhood for its content. Like many others, I was obsessed with science fiction when I was younger, and in particular with the representation of robots in science fiction. I had two favourite fictional robots. The first was R2-D2 from the original Star Wars trilogy, and the second was Commander Data from Star Trek The Next Generation. I liked R2-D2 because of his personality, courageous, playful, and disdainful of authority. And I liked Data because the writers of Star Trek used him as a vehicle for exploring some important philosophical questions about what it means to be human, and emotion, and humor, and so forth. In fact, I have to confess that Data has had an outsized influence on my philosophical imagination, and indeed he has featured in several of my academic papers. Part of the reason for this is practical. When I grew up, we didn't have many options to choose from when it came to TV. We had to make do with what was available. And, as luck would have it, Star Trek The Next Generation was on every day when I came home from school. As a result, I must have watched each episode of its seven-season run multiple times. One episode in particular has always stayed with me. It was called Measure of a Man, In it, a scientist from the Federation visits the Starship Enterprise because he wants to take Data back to his lab to study him. Data, you see, is a sophisticated human-like android created by a lone scientific genius under somewhat dubious conditions. The Federation wants to take Data apart to see how he works and with a view to building others like him. Data, unsurprisingly, objects. He argues that he is not just a machine or a piece of property that can be traded and disassembled to suit the whims of human beings. He has his own independent moral standing. He deserves to be treated with dignity. But how can Data prove his case? In the episode, a trial ensues, and evidence is given on both sides. The prosecution argue that Data is clearly just a piece of property. He was created, not born. He doesn't think or see the world like a human being. He even has an off switch. Data counters by giving evidence of the rich relationships he has formed with his fellow crew members, eliciting testimony from them regarding his behaviour and interactions. Ultimately, Data wins the case. The court accepts that he has moral standing. Now, we can certainly lament the impact that science fiction of this sort has had on the philosophical debate about robots. As David Gunkel observes in his 2018 book, Robot Rights... Science fiction already, and well in advance of actual engineering practice, has established expectations for what a robot is or can be, even before engineers have sought to develop working prototypes. Writers, artists, and filmmakers have imagined what robots do or can do, what configurations they might take, and what problems they could produce for human individuals and communities. He continues, noting that this is a potential liability because. Science fiction, it is argued, often produces unrealistic expectations for, and irrational fears about, robots that are not grounded in or informed by actual science. Now, I would certainly like to heed this warning. But, nevertheless, I think that the approach taken by the next generation writers in the episode Measure of a Man is fundamentally correct. Even if we cannot currently create a being like Data, And even if the speculation here is well in advance of the actual science, they have still given us the correct guide to resolving the philosophical question of when to welcome robots into our moral community. Or so at least I shall argue in the remainder of this lecture. Now before I get into my own argument, let me say something about the current lay of the land when it comes to this issue. Because it's not necessarily pretty. Some of you might be familiar with the famous study by the social psychologist Muzafir Sharif. It was done in the early 1950s at a summer camp in Roberts Cave, Oklahoma. Suffice to say, this is one of those studies that would never get ethics approval nowadays. Sharif and his colleagues were interested in tribalism and conflict. They wanted to see how easy it would be to get two groups of 11-year-old boys to divide into separate tribes and to go to war with one another. It turned out to be surprisingly easy. By arbitrarily separating the boys into two groups, by giving them some nominal group identity, the rattlers and the eagles, and by putting them into competition with each other, Sharif and his research assistants sowed the seeds for bitter and repeated conflict. The study has become a classic, repeatedly cited as evidence of how easy it is for humans to get trapped in intransigent group conflict. And I mention it here because, unfortunately, it seems to capture what has happened with the debate about the potential moral standing of robots. The disputants have settled into two tribes. There are those that are anti the idea, and there are those that are pro the idea. And the members of these tribes sometimes get into heated arguments with one another, particularly on Twitter, which is admittedly not the best medium for rational debate. Those that are anti the idea would include... Noel Sharkey, Amanda Sharkey, Deborah Johnson, Amy Van Winsburg, and the most recent lecturer in this series, Joanna Bryson. They cite a variety of reasons for their opposition. The Sharkeys, I suspect, think that the whole debate is slightly ridiculous because current robots clearly lack the capacity for moral standing, and indeed debating their moral standing distracts us from the important issues in robot ethics, namely stopping the creation of robots that are harmful to human well-being. Deborah Johnson would, I think, argue that robots can never experience pain or suffering, and so as a result will never have moral standing. Van Winsberg and Bryson are maybe a little bit different, and lean more heavily on the idea that even if it were possible to create robots with moral standing, a possibility that Bryson at least is willing to concede, it would be a very bad idea to do so, because it would cause considerable moral and legal disruption. Those that are pro the idea would include Kate Darling, Mark Kuckelberg, David Gunkel, Erica Neely, and Daniel Estrada. Again, they cite a variety of reasons for their views. Darling is probably the weakest on the pro side here. She focuses on humans and thinks that even if robots themselves lack moral standing, we should treat them as if they do, because that would be better for us and how we treat one another. Kuckelberg and Gunkel are more provocative arguing that in settling questions of moral standing, we should focus less on the intrinsic capacities of robots and more on how we relate to them. If those relations are thick and meaningful, then perhaps we should accept that robots have moral standing. and Neely proceeds from a principle of moral precaution, arguing that even if we are unsure of the moral standing of robots, we should err on the side of over-inclusivity rather than under-inclusivity when it comes to this issue. This is because it is much worse to exclude a being with moral standing than it is to include one without. Daniel Estrada, then, is probably the polar opposite of people like Bryson and Van Winsberg. He welcomes the moral and legal disruption that embracing robots would entail, because it would loosen the grip of humanism on our ethics. What about me, then? Where do I fit in in all of this? I think most people would classify me as belonging to the pro-side of the debate. I have certainly argued in the past that we should be open to the idea that robots have moral standing, but I would much prefer to actually transcend this tribalistic framing of the issue. I am not an advocate for the moral standing of robots. I think actually that many of the concerns raised by those on the anti-side are valid. Debating the moral standing of robots can seem at times ridiculous and a distraction from other important questions in robot ethics. Furthermore, accepting them into our moral communities will undoubtedly lead to some legal and moral disruption, though I would add here that not all disruption is a bad thing. That said, I do care about the principles we should use to decide questions of moral standing, and I think that those on the anti-side of the debate sometimes use bad arguments to support their views. This is why, in the remainder of this lecture, I will defend a particular approach to settling questions of moral standing— And I'll do so in the hope that this can pave the way to a more fruitful and hopefully less tribalistic debate. In this sense, I try to return to what I think is the true lesson of Sharif's famous experiment on tribalism. In her fascinating book, The Lost Boys, Inside Muzafer Sharif's Robber's Cave Experiment, Gina Perry has revealed the hidden history behind Sharif's work. It turns out that Sharif tried to conduct the exact same experiment one year before Robber's Cave in Middlegrove, New York and it didn't work out. No matter what he and the other experimenters did to encourage conflict, the boys at that summer camp refused to get sucked into it. And why was this? Well, one suggestion is that at Middlegrove, Sharif didn't sort the boys into two arbitrary groups as soon as they arrived. They were given the chance to mingle, to get to know one another before being segregated. This initial intermingling may have inoculated them from tribalism. And perhaps we can do something similar with careful philosophical dialogue. I live in hope. So what then of the view that I want to defend? The view is something that I call ethical behaviorism. According to this view, the behavioral representations of another entity towards you are a sufficient and oftentimes the best or only ground for determining their moral status or standing. To put it slightly differently, how an entity looks and acts is enough to determine its moral status. If it looks and acts like a duck, then you should probably treat it like any other duck. Now, ethical behaviorism works through comparisons. If you are unsure about the moral status of a particular entity, and for present purposes this will be a robot, then you should compare its behaviors to that of another entity that has already agreed to have moral status, say a human being or an animal. If the robot is roughly performatively equivalent to that other entity, then it too has moral status. I say roughly performatively equivalent, since no two entities are ever perfectly equivalent. If you compared two adult human beings, you would probably spot some performative differences between them, but this wouldn't mean that one of them lacks moral standing as a result. The comparative test is always a rough one, and not an exact one. Now, there is nothing novel in ethical behaviorism. It is, in effect, just a moral variation of the famous Turing test for machine intelligence. Where Turing argued that we should assess intelligence on the basis of behavior, I am arguing that we should determine moral standing on the basis of behavior. And I'm not the first to defend this view. Others have defended something very similar to it, even if they haven't explicitly labeled it as such. Despite the lack of novelty, ethical behaviorism is easily misunderstood and frequently derided. So let me just clarify a couple of points. Ethical behaviorism is a practical and epistemic thesis about how we can settle questions of moral standing. It is not an abstract, metaphysical thesis about what it is that actually grounds moral standing. So, for example, somebody could argue that the capacity to feel pain is what metaphysically grounds moral status, and this that this capacity in turn depends on a creature having a certain kind of mental apparatus. The ethical behaviorist can agree with all of this. They will just argue that the best evidence we have For determining whether an entity has the capacity to feel pain is behavioural. Furthermore, ethical behaviourism is agnostic about the broader consequences of its comparative tests. To say that one entity should have the same moral standing as another does not mean that both are entitled to a full set of legal and moral rights. That depends on other considerations. A goat, for example, could have moral standing, but that doesn't mean it has the right to own property. This is important because when I'm arguing that we should apply this comparative approach to robots, I am not thereby endorsing a broader claim that we should somehow grant robots legal rights or treat them like adult human beings. That depends on who or what they are being compared to. So what's the argument for ethical behaviorism? Well, it consists of three basic propositions or premises. The first premise is that The most popular criteria for moral status are dependent on mental states or capacities. For example, I'm thinking here of theories that focus on sentience, consciousness, having interests, being an agent, or being a person. They all depend on some kind of claim about a mental state or capacity, or a set of such capacities. Premise two is that the best evidence, and oftentimes really the only practicable evidence, we have, for the satisfaction of these criteria, is behavioral. And the third premise is that alternative alleged grounds for moral status, or other criteria for determining moral status, either fail to trump or dislodge the behavioral criteria. The conclusion, therefore, is that ethical behaviorism is correct, and that behavior provides a sufficient basis for settling questions of moral status. Now, I take it that the first premise of this argument is uncontroversial, Even if you think that there are other grounds for determining moral status, I suspect that you agree that an entity with sentience or consciousness has some kind of moral standing. The second premise is more controversial, but is, I think, undeniable in practice. It's a trite observation, but I'm going to make it anyway. We don't have direct access to another's mind. I cannot crawl inside your head and see if you are really experiencing pain or suffering. The only thing I have to go on is how you behave and react to the world. This is true, by the way, even if I can scan your brain and see whether the pain-perceiving part of it lights up. This is because the only basis we have for verifying the correlations between functional activity in the brain and mental states is behavioral. What I mean is that when scientists try to verify these correlations, what they do is they just ask people in brain scanners what they are feeling. So, all premise two is saying is that if the most popular theories of moral status are to work in practice, this can only be because we use behavioral evidence to guide our application of those theories. That brings us then to premise three the claim that all other criteria fail to dislodge the importance of the behavioral evidence. Now, this is the controversial one. This is the one that people seem to passionately reject. And it's one of the reasons why they think ethical behaviorism is absurd and should be resistant. Consider these two recent Twitter comments on an article I wrote about ethical behaviorism and how it relates to animals and robots. The first comment. This is errant behaviorist materialist nonsense. Robots are inanimate. Even if they imitate animal behavior, they don't want or care about anything. But you knock yourself out. Put your toaster in jail if it burns your toast. Second comment. If I give a hammer a friendly face so that some people feel emotionally attached to it, it still remains a tool. Hashtag anthropomorphic fallacy. Now these are strong, critical statements, but they are not at all unusual. I encounter criticism of this kind quite frequently. But why? Why is it that people are so resistant? Why do they think that there must be something other than behavior that determines the moral status of another being? Let's consider some of the most popular objections. In a recent paper, I suggested that there are seven, or probably more depending on how you count, major objections to ethical behaviorism. I also argue that each of these objections is unpersuasive. Now, I'm not going to review all seven here, but I will consider four of the most popular ones. Each of these objections should be understood as an attempt to argue that behavioral evidence by itself cannot suffice for determining the moral standing or status of another being. Other evidence matters as well, and that evidence can defeat or undermine the behavioral evidence. The first objection is that the ontology of an entity makes a difference to its moral standing. To adopt some Aristotelian language, partly just because I like it, we can say that the material cause of an entity, what it is made up of, matters more than its behavior. So, for example, somebody could argue that robots must lack moral standing because they are not biological creatures. They're not made from the same wet, organic components as human beings and animals. Even if they are performatively equivalent to human beings and animals, this ontological difference scuppers any claim they might have to equal moral standing. Now, I find this objection unpersuasive because to me it smacks of biological mysterianism. Why exactly does being made of a particular organic material make such a crucial difference? Suppose your spouse, the person that you live with every day, was suddenly revealed to be an alien from the Andromeda galaxy. Scientists conduct careful tests and determine that they are not a carbon-based life-form. They are made from something different. Perhaps they're made from silicon. Despite this, they still look and act in the same way as they always have, albeit now they have some explaining to do. Would the fact that they are made of different stuff mean that they no longer warrant moral standing in your eyes? Surely not, Surely the behavioural evidence suggesting that they still care about you and they still have the same mental capacities that you used to associate with moral standing would trump the new evidence you have regarding their ontology. Now I know non-philosophers don't like thought experiments like this, finding them to be slightly ridiculous and far-fetched. Nevertheless, I do think they are vital in this context because they reveal that behaviour is really what matters here, more than matter. This is also, incidentally, why I think it's just wrong to say that ethical behaviourism is a materialist view. Ethical behaviourism is agnostic about the physical instantiation of the mind. All that said, I am willing to make one major concession to the material cause objection. I will concede that ontology might provide an alternative, independent ground for determining the moral status of an entity us, I think we can accept that an entity that is made of the right biological stuff has moral standing, even if they lack some behavioral sophistication that we usually require for moral standing. For example, someone in a permanent coma might have moral standing because of what they are made of, and not because of what they can do. Still, all this would show is that being made of the right stuff provides an independent sufficient ground for moral standing, and not that it is itself a necessary ground for moral standing. The latter is what you need to prove to undermine ethical behaviorism. The second objection is that how an entity comes into existence makes a difference to its moral standing. To continue the Aristotelian theme, we can say that the efficient cause of existence is more important than the unfolding reality of existence. This is an objection that the philosopher Michael Hauskeller hints at in some of his work. Now, Hauskeller doesn't focus on the moral standing of another entity per se, but he does focus on when it is that we can be confident that another entity cares for us. He concedes that behavior seems like the most important thing. What else could caring be apart from caring behavior? But then he resiles from this conclusion by arguing that how the being came into existence can undercut the behavioral evidence. So, for example, a robot might act as if it cares about you, But when you learn that the robot was created and manufactured by a team of humans to act as if it cares for you, then you have reason to doubt the veracity or sincerity of its behavior. Now, it could be that what Hauskeller is getting at here is that behavioral evidence can often be deceptive and misleading. If that's his concern, then I'll deal with it in a moment. But it could also be that he's making a different point, and that he thinks that the mere fact that a robot was programmed and manufactured, as opposed to being evolved and developed, makes a crucial difference to its moral standing. If that is what he's arguing, then I think it's hard to take it seriously. Again, imagine if your spouse told you that they were not conceived and raised in the normal way. They were genetically engineered in a lab and then carefully trained and educated. Having learned this, would you take a new view of their moral standing? Surely not. Surely, once again, how they actually behave towards you, and not how they came into existence, would be what ultimately mattered. Furthermore, if this is what Kauskeller is arguing, it would provide us with a very unstable basis on which to make crucial judgments of moral standing. After all, the differences between humans and robots with respect to their efficient causes is starting to blur. Increasingly, robots are not being programmed and manufactured from the top down to follow specific rules they are instead being given learning algorithms and then trained on datasets with the process sometimes being explicitly modeled on evolution and childhood development similarly humans are now increasingly being designed and programmed from the top down through artificial reproduction embryo selection and soon no doubt genetic engineering now you might object to all of this tinkering with the natural processes of human development and conception But I think you would be hard-pressed to deny a human that came into existence as a result of these processes the moral standing that you ordinarily give to other human beings. So this efficient cause objection doesn't work. The third objection is that the purpose that an entity serves, its final cause, and how it is expected to fulfill that purpose makes a difference to its moral standing. Now this is an objection that Joanna Bryson has favored in some of her work, In several papers, she has argued that because robots will be designed to fulfill certain purposes on our behalf, in other words, because they will be designed to serve us in some way, and because they will be owned and controlled by us in the process, they should not have moral standing. Now, to be fair, Bryson is more open to the possibility of robot moral standing than most. She has said on several occasions that it is possible to create robots that have moral standing. She just thinks that this should not happen. And one of the reasons why she thinks this is because that robots will serve us and they will be owned and controlled by us. Now, this can be a little bit difficult to understand, but I don't think there's anything here that dislodges or upsets ethical behaviorism. For one thing, I find it hard to believe that the fact that an entity has been designed to fulfill a certain purpose should make a crucial difference to its moral standing. Suppose in the future that human parents can genetically engineer their offspring to fulfill certain ends. For example, they can select genes that will guarantee with the right training regimen that their child will be a successful athlete. This is actually not that dissimilar from what many parents try to do nowadays. Would this fact alone undermine a child's claim to moral standing? Surely not, and surely the same standard should apply to a robot, If it is performatively equivalent to another entity with moral standing, then the mere fact that it has been designed to serve us should not affect its moral standing. Related to this, it's hard to see why the fact that we might own and control robots should make a crucial difference to their moral standing. If anything, this seems to invert the proper order of moral justification. The fact that a robot looks and acts like another entity that we believe to have moral standing should cause us to question our approach to to ownership and control, not vice versa. So we once thought it was okay for humans to own and control other humans, but we were wrong to think this, and we were wrong to think it because it ignored the moral standing of those other humans. That said, there are some nuances here. Many people think that animals have some moral standing, that we need to respect their welfare, and care for their well-being. But they don't think it is wrong to own animals or control them. The same approach might apply to robots if they are being compared to animals. And this is one of the crucial points about ethical behaviorism. The ethical consequences of accepting that a robot is performatively equivalent to another entity depends crucially on who or what that other entity is. The fourth objection is that ethical behaviorism cannot work because it is too easy to be deceived by behavioural cues. A robot might look and act like it is in pain, but this could just be a clever trick used by the manufacturer to foster false sympathy. This is probably the most important criticism of ethical behaviourism, and it is what I think lurks behind the deep-seated opposition to it, and also this tendency to claim that it is absurd. It is well known that humans have a tendency toward hasty anthropomorphism, That is to say, we tend to ascribe human-like qualities to features of our environment without proper justification. We anthropomorphize the weather, our computers, the trees, the plants, and so forth. It is easy to hack this tendency towards hasty anthropomorphism. As social roboticists know, putting a pair of eyes on a robot can completely change how a human interacts with it, even if the robot cannot actually see anything. People worry, consequently, that ethical behaviorism is easily exploited by nefarious technology companies, and so must be rejected. Now, I don't find this objection persuasive, but I certainly sympathize with the fear that motivates it. It is definitely true that behavior can be misleading and deceptive. For example, we are often misled by the behavior of our fellow human beings. To quote Shakespeare here, someone can smile and smile and be a villain. But what is the significance of this fact? To me, the significance of it is that it means we should be very careful when assessing the behavioural evidence that is used to support a claim of moral status. We shouldn't extrapolate too quickly from one behaviour. If a robot looks and acts like it is in pain, that might provide some warrant for thinking that it has moral status, but we should examine its behavioural repertoire in more detail. It might emerge from those other behaviors that there's something inconsistent here with the hypothesis that it feels pain or suffering. The point, however, is that we're always going to be using other behavioral evidence to determine whether the initial behavioral evidence was deceptive or misleading. We are not going to be relying on some other kind of information. Thus, for example, I think it would be a mistake to conclude that a robot cannot feel pain, even though it performs as if it does, simply because the manufacturer of the robot tells us that they programmed the the robot to do this, or simply because some computer engineer can point to some lines of code that are responsible for the pain performance. That evidence, by itself, cannot undermine the behavioral evidence suggesting that the robot does feel pain. Think about it like this. Imagine if a biologist came to you and told you that evolution had programmed the pain response into humans in order to elicit sympathy from fellow humans. What's more, imagine if a neuroscientist came to you and pointed to the exact circuit in the brain that is responsible for this pain performance. What they say may well be true, but it wouldn't mean that the behavioral evidence suggesting that your fellow humans are in pain can be ignored. Now, this last point is really the crucial bit, and it is what is most distinctive about the perspective of ethical behaviorism. The tendency to ignore it or not appreciate it, is why I think many people on the anti-side of the debate make bad arguments. Okay, so that's all I'm going to say in defense of ethical behaviorism this evening. Let me just wrap up by addressing some of its implications and heading off some potential misunderstandings. First let me just re-emphasize that ethical behaviorism is about the principles that we should apply when assessing the moral standing of robots. In defending it, I am not claiming that robots currently have moral standing, or indeed that they will ever have moral standing. I personally think that this is possible, indeed probable, but I could well be wrong. The devil is going to be in the detail of the behavioral tests we apply, just as it is with the Turing test for intelligence. This means that those who think that the debate about the moral standing of robots is a distraction from other important issues in robot ethics could well be right, at least in the short term. Second, let me also emphasize that there is nothing in ethical behaviorism that suggests that we ought to create robots that cross the performative threshold to have moral standing. It could be, as people like Bryson and Van Winsberg argue, that this is a very bad idea, that it will just be too disruptive of existing moral and legal norms. What ethical behaviorism does suggest, however, is that there is an ethical weight to the decision to create human-like and animal-like robots and that this is perhaps being underappreciated by robot manufacturers. Third, even if we acknowledge the potential risks here, I think that we should also acknowledge that there are potential benefits to creating robots that cross the performative threshold to have moral standing. Indeed, one of the virtues of ethical behaviorism is that it can help to reveal a value to relationships with robots that is otherwise hidden. If I'm right, then under the right conditions, Robots can be genuine objects of moral affection, friendship, and even love. In other words, just as there are ethical risks to creating human like and animal like robots, there are also ethical rewards. And I think these tend to be ignored or ridiculed in the current debate. Fourth and finally, and related to the previous point, I just want to say that the performative threshold that robots have to cross in order to unlock the different kinds of value might vary quite a bit in practice. So the performative threshold that a robot needs to cross in order to attain some basic moral standing might be quite low, but the performative threshold that it needs to cross in order to be your friend or to be your lover might be substantially higher. Now, these are topics that I have explored in greater detail in some of my other papers, but I don't have time to address them at any length right now. So on that note, it's probably time for me to shut up and to hand over to you. Thank you.